welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are dreams and hallucinations actually doors to other worlds? Could some mentally ill people actually be saner than we are? What is the nature of immortality? Well, welcome to the 744th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, I'm not Ben, as you know, and uh, he's kind of wrestling with the board, having a few technical issues. And those uh, conscious questions uh, were the result of our very interesting guest today, and one of our favorite guests, actually. He returns to the show, and we will not take calls today, but if you wish to ask Anthony a question, we welcome your emails at paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Coming to us via Skype from the UK is Anthony Peak. Anthony is the author of eight books and co-author with several very distinguished colleagues of two others. All his books develop his cheating the ferryman, ferryman meaning death, hypothesis into ever wider areas of application. His approach has always been to apply science to the mysterious and the enigmatic. Anthony's latest book on the time plays and time theories of British author playwright J.B. Priestley was released earlier this year. His 2016 book, Opening the Doors of Perception, the subject of our journey today, updates the work of Aldous Huxley using the latest information from quantum physics, neurochemistry, and consciousness studies. And I must say that anyone with the cheek to improve on Huxley deserves to be on this show. So, Anthony Peake, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. I'm delighted to be back talking to you guys. Okay, well, I'll uh, take Ben's first question here for him. Uh, let's begin with a broad stroke. What are the doors of perception, and how do you open them? Okay. Uh, originally, the term the doors of perception came from a poem by William Blake, and basically what William Blake says, if the doors were open, we would perceive reality as it is infinite. Now, this idea has long been believed that the brain acts as an attenuator, that is, it takes out information rather than ex- gives us additional information about external reality. And in fact, a guy called Henri Bergson, who was a French philosopher at the turn of the 19th century, was very intrigued by these areas. But it, basically, the doors of perception as a concept was very much taken by the British writer Aldous Huxley in 1954 when he paraphrased uh, what uh, Blake had stated and wrote a book about his own experiences uh, regarding um, AOT or mescaline. Okay. Uh, do we still have you here, Anthony? Yeah, he's, he's there. Okay. Well, I don't hear... Oh, well, okay. Very good. Sorry, I didn't hear you there. It's no, alright, no. I'm still here. Well, you know, they are gone to having fun today by the sound of it. We are having a wonderful time. They okay. always do with me. Yes. So where did Huxley leave off and where did you pick up pick it up, so to speak? Right, okay. Well, Huxley himself, uh, fascinating guy, and if we take the opportunity, we can go into a little bit more detail about Huxley's book, because I think it is very important. But uh, Huxley did not have the advantage I have got, purely and simply because I was writing the book uh, in 2016. Uh, 2017, World's Oldest Huxley was writing it in the mid-1950s. So there have been huge advances made in the terms of uh, the mind-body interface. 
particularly with certain substances such as entheogens, such as dimethyltryptamine, the research of people like uh, Rick Strassman and other individuals. Um, and clearly we, are, we have a greater understanding now of, of how these substances react in the brain. So what I've done is I've taken Huxley's original premise and expanded it further and said that I've not just uh, opened the doors of perception, I believe I can blow them off. The other thing that I do in the book, which Huxley does not do, is apply these ideas and concepts to known neurological conditions. And I suggest that there are certain neurological conditions that people experience that can open the doors wider and wider. And the book very much puts puts the information together as to why this may be. Now, again, unlike many, many writers in this field, I do the science. I seriously do the science. You know, I don't make glib statements about right. information. I actually take my reader through what exactly neurotransmitters are, exactly how communication is across the brain, um, and some of the latest research in terms of neuroscience. So I build up a very, very precise picture of exactly what is taking place under certain certain extraordinary experiences in terms of out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, uh, precognitions, these type of things. And I believe they are all and can all be tied very, very succinctly to my overall hypothesis, which is cheating the ferryman. Okay. One of the issues, and th this came up very early in our 10 years on the air, one of our first guests was Dr. Michael Persinger from Sudbury University in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, as anyone knows, was researching various uh, things of this kind, and he had the God helmet, something Ben at his age was very interested in. Uh, and the question arose, what is real and what is not when it comes to conscious experience? And we were rather surprised and pleased when he said, well, just because it's artificially stimulated does not mean that it's not real. So, so uh, Anthony, how would you define real, and which con how do we know that consciousness, conscious experiences uh, related to the body or anything else are real? Absolutely. I mean, Mike Persinger was, was absolutely correct there in the sense that the, the belief that what we, the information we are given from our senses is a one-to-one -one relationship with what is external to us is called naive realism. And this is not my term, this is a term that psychologists and perception studies uh, experts have used for many, many years. Because it is naive to believe that what you are perceiving is actually what is out there. I use an example in uh, Opening the Doors of Perception, whereby I say that I use the example of what I call electromagnetic chauvinism. And by this I mean that we believe that what we see through our eyes is what's out there. But a moment's reflection and a moment's knowledge of, of uh, physics will tell you that, that is not the case. Uh, in fact, how we see is that uh, tiny photons of light, and of course whether a photon is a wave or a particle, is a whole new area of debate and discussion that we could go into. But let's argue for the sake of argument that photons, bosons that carry the electromagnetic uh, uh, field, um, are tiny particles. Now a photon hits your eye then engages with the retina at the back of the eye. The retina then converts that information into an electrical impulse, which then goes to the darkest place of the back of the brain, the visual cortex at the back of the brain. It then reassembles that picture of the external world. Now, the picture on the retina is postage stamp size and inverted. And yet your brain takes that information and creates a whole three-dimensional image that you now see looking out of your eyes. That is impossible. 
Um, in fact, uh, a guy called Richard L. Gregory, who was, um, was he, he died comparatively recently, was one of the world's experts on vision systems. And he argued that this is, this is absolutely impossible. The brain fills in information that's not there. But what is more important is the amount of information we take that our eyes are sensitive to in terms of the electromagnetic spectrum is incredibly tiny. And in the book, I give an example of this. I say that imagine the electromagnetic spectrum, which effectively is all forms of light, as we generally call it, from uh, radio waves to x-rays. You know, the, the, the huge area of difference between these in terms of wavelength and frequency. But effectively, imagine that it was the uh, Mississippi River. And of course, the Mississippi River starts in a small lake in, in Minnesota, and it winds its way through the central plains of the United States, and then goes out in the Gulf of Mexico. The electromagnetic spectrum that we see, visible light that that is, in fact, would be around about an inch and a half, about 13 miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. Now, we believe that everything that is out there is that. But, of course, you take how a, a bee sees a flower. It sees in the, uh, the, the, the infrared. It, doesn't, it sees it completely differently to the way we see it. So the same goes for sound. We know that dogs can hear things that we can't hear. But more importantly, everything we perceive is generated by the brain from information that is coming into it. It models that information and presents it to consciousness. We are, the latest research has said we are in some occasions up to six seconds behind what is happening in external reality. This, this is, there is a big delay between what is actually happening out there and what we perceive. Um, so clearly there is some kind of magic going on here. So it is incredibly naive to just assume that reality is as we see it. Because, of course, reality itself is made up of, when it really comes down to it, the external physical reality that you see out there is made up of effectively 18 particles, uh, the, the six quarks, the six leptons, and um, interacting with the forces, um, with various, the various forces we have. But these things themselves are mostly empty space. So everything that we think is physically real and is solid isn't. The only reason that you don't fall through the chair you're sitting on at the moment is because of the electrostatic force, because you would otherwise, because of your course your body is mostly empty space as well. And all this empty space, and it's vastly empty, we're not talking about a small amount of emptiness, it's vastly empty. And of course, finally, on top of that, we have the mysteries that we only know around about 4% of what the known universe is. We don't know what dark energy is, we don't know what dark matter is. We are standing on the edge of a precipice, which is reality, and a lot of scientists these days are suffering from hubris because they're turning around and saying, we know everything there is to know about physical reality, the standard model has explained everything. It hasn't. You know, it has not explained everything. There are huge mysteries out there, but the biggest mystery of all is what's going on inside your head. The biggest mystery is the perceiver of the perceived, the role that consciousness has in the creation of your external reality. And, of course, quantum physics tells us that the act of observation, the act of measurement, actually collapses the wave functions into a point particle. So, everything that seems to be isn't. Well, there we have it. This seems like it's getting into something that is very important, which is non-locality. Mm. What part might that play? The idea that, that uh, let's say, our memories or our, our, our imaginations, things of that kind, may not always be inside of us, as the island theory, as we call it, would say. What about yeah. non-locality in all this? 
Yeah, well, non-locality is a, is a fascinating concept, and whenever I lecture, um, I, I discuss this in great detail because having a grasp on exactly what we mean by non-locality really will open people's minds to understanding the mysteries of reality. It all started way back in the mid to late 1930s when Albert Einstein himself had profound problems with the implications of what was called the Copenhagen Interpretation of Quantum Physics, which was set up by Niels Bohr and his associates in Copenhagen. And he had difficulties with it because he didn't believe the, the statement I made before that in some magical way, reality doesn't exist if you're not looking at it. In fact, he made a very, very famous quotation when he turned around and he said, I do not believe that the moon is not there when I, look, when I don't look at it. So what he did was he built up this thought experiment with two associates of, of, of his called um, uh, Podolsky and Rosen, which became known as the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen thought experiment or the EPR experiment. And he put forward a way of ridiculing what Niels Bohr had said about the way in which subatomic particles work. Now, put simply, he argued that if, if you cannot see a subatomic particle, it continues. Your act of observation doesn't collapse its wave function, it doesn't change it. Now, to cut a long story short, in about 1964, there was um, an Irish, Northern Irish um, phys uh, physicist working at CERN, um, and he, he decided that he would try and look at the maths of, of what Einstein was talking about. And his maths then were then put together by a guy called um, Alain Aspect at the University of Paris uh, Institute of Optics and it was actually proven that objects if you take two objects and you place them in the same quantum state, if you have the same spin or whatever, but the same quantum state and you take those particles and you put them miles away from each other if you do one thing to one particle, the other particle reacts immediately now, I mean immediately. I don't mean in the speed of light. It's instantaneous. And it suggests that particles, however far they are from away from each other, can communicate instantaneously. This effectively means that at a deeper level of reality, particles seem to be a unity. They seem to be the elements of the same particle. Now, again, there's a guy called Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna who's been working on this now for many, many years. He's been working on entangled particles that spread between Earth, uh, I think he's done it between the Earth and the Moon. I definitely know he's done it along the Great Wall of China, and I know he's done it between islands in the Canary Islands. Now, this is amazing material, because what it's saying is that reality is holistic. What we see as separation, what we see as distance, what we see as space, in fact, is an illusion created by the mind. Everything is a unity. So if we see one subatomic particle and another subatomic particle, they're effectively they are the same subatomic particle, uh, just in different spatial locations. Now again, it's a philosophical aspect, but if there was nothing in space, would space itself exist anyway? The only reason that you know that an object is at distance from you is because of the, the space around you. But space is filled with, with objects. Mac, uh, I think it was Ernst Mach. Uh, the guy with max speed, he was the first person to really argue this, although the philosophical aspects go back centuries. But it means that if reality is at a lower level a singularity, this tells us something profoundly important about the nature of, of perceived reality. 
And this nature is something quite precise, and I discuss it in my work in great detail. It does seem that we are existing in a huge hologram. And what we think is three-dimensional reality is, in fact, a two-dimensional hologram made up of information, made up of bits, made up of digital information. Nothing more or nothing less. Well, there we are. Before we get into the uh, question of uh, where this hologram might be being projected from, there is something in the nature of consciousness, I suppose, as seen by indigenous peoples around the world. We always run into that, particularly in dealing with shamans. And that's the notion uh, that everything, in their terms, everything has a spirit. Which really, to, to me, has always meant everything is conscious. So, based on what you've just said, uh, is it perhaps true that uh, indigenous peoples understand everything you've just said, but put it in their own terms? I think there's always a dangerous error to, to fall into cultural relativism in things like this. Hmm. Um, in that they may or they may not. Effectively, what they are doing is they're making sense of the universe that they perceive using their, their science and their intuitive understanding. Um, now, it may be that they have a deeper knowledge of the relationships between what is reality and what isn't. It could also be that they are carrying forward into our times older science that, that our civilizations have forgotten, that there could have been a, a deeper understanding of the relationships between us and reality far many, many centuries ago, you know, eons ago, possibly. Now, again, in terms of this, it always intrigues me about how in which we have this idea, the, the concept of God. We, we tend to anthropomorphize God. We tend to see God in our own image. Yes. But what about the idea that God, God is everything? You know, and I contributed a chapter to a book uh, called Pandeism, uh, and pandeism is the concept that, that effectively everything is God, and we are all eminence, eminences of God, whatever we want to call God. And we are here assisting effectively the universe and into becoming self-aware. Now again, the strong, strong information from physics and from cosmology to suggest that this might be the case, because it does seem that the universe is in some way hardwired for the evolution of conscious beings. Now, if there is a direct relationship between the act of observation and external reality, that means that external reality needs consciousness in order to bring it into existence. And I know there'll be people jumping up and down there and saying, utter nonsense. There were literally aeons of time before human beings existed, so what was bringing that into existence? And I will bounce back on that argument to say, we need to understand what the true nature of time is before we can make glib statements like mm. that. Because I, I, I wrote a book called The Labyrinth of Time on the physics of time and the, the, the psychology of time. But more importantly, there have been various thought experiments taken from directly from quantum physics and suggested by people like John Wheeler that the act of observation actually brings into effect things that existed in the deep and distant past. There's one thought experiment that John Wheeler did called the, the, the um, twin-split delayed experiment, delayed observation experiment, whereby he showed by using something called gravitational lensing that the act of observation now brings into existence a quasar that hasn't probably existed for billions of years because the way the light works, and I won't go into that, but if anybody's interested, just look up gravitational lensing and John Wheeler um, because this is intriguing stuff because it is suggesting that there is a direct relationship between 
what is observation and what is reality out there. Now, indigenous peoples, traditional societies, seem to know this instinctively. And I think the reason they know this instinctively is they're far more attuned to nature than we are. Because we go round in our little, we go in our cars, we live in our houses, we very rarely these days sleep under the stars, we don't look at the sky, and we've lost that wonder of the magical within the universe. And indeed, this is one of the topics of my last book with, about J.B. Priestley. It's the idea of the magical within everything. And I, I don't mean, I mean magical in the terms of the occult, I mean magical in terms of the relationship between consciousness and the external world. Well, there we are. Uh, ben, you've been sitting very quietly. If you're through, jumping through hoops, and do you have any questions for him? He, he can't hear me. There's no... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, at the break, we'll move you closer to the microphone. Yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's why I suggested that. We love Scott. Uh, on the issue of the hologram, Anthony, there I've often been asked the question, and I've asked it myself, uh, if, there is a, if we are living in a hologram, something must be projecting it. So, in your opinion, <laughs> is, it, is that too simplistic? Or, if not then who or what is doing the projecting? I know aliens have been suggested. Yep. There are two lines of inquiry here. The first one is the nature of the hologram. And there is, uh, we need to go back to the work of all people, uh, um, uh, Stephen Hawking, on this, and something called Hawking radiation. The physics is fairly powerful in terms of this. It's to do with um, black holes and the way in which black holes, if you threw a computer into a black hole, what would happen would be that information would be lost in the universe because all the information of the computer would be lost. But that's impossible. Second law of thermodynamics tells you that you can, in an enclosed system, which the universe is, things cannot be lost. They can be converted into other things, but they cannot be lost. Now, there is, um, within quantum physics, there's something called the creation of vertical par uh, virtual particles. Virtual particles are particles that seem to come out of what's called a quantum vacuum. There's a lot of um, physical effects that, de that need the existence of these strange particles. Now, what is intriguing about these strange particles is they always come in pairs. So if you create a virtual particle, you will have an antiparticle and a positive particle. And the argument is that one of the particles, if they're on the edge of a black hole, one of them gets sucked into the black hole and gets destroyed. But the, the particle that survives, the, in the particle that contains the information that survives it, gets smeared along the edge of the black hole, along the event horizon of the black hole. Now, from this, it has been extrapolated by researchers such as Jacob Beckenstein, who is an Israeli scientist, and Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in Canada, that what is actually taking place is, if you imagine the universe as being like a huge sphere, which it will be effectively, from the Big Bang, the universe reality expands outwards. It will be like a huge sphere. Now, we live inside this sphere, but there is an inside edge to the sphere. As you can imagine, living inside, say, a balloon that's inflating, you live on, we live in the middle of that balloon, and on the inside edge of that balloon, they argue there are very, very tiny Planck-scale objects, black holes. And these little Planck-scale, Planck-scale is the smallest size you can possibly have. And these actually are digitized. They have information, and they're either on or off. And these project information, three-dimensional information, into a two-dimensional plane. And we exist within that two-dimensional plane. So everything is based on holography and everything is based upon digital information. Now, that's the first model. That's the model. And again, if anybody got the opportunity, 
There is a fascinating article which was written about eight or nine years ago in Scientific American. And the cover actually says, are we living in a hologram? Okay? Yeah, I've read that, yeah. Okay, so that really gives you some good ideas. It's an incredibly difficult concept to grasp. I've spent the last five or six years reading all I can on this to understand it. My, my plan now is to try and explain it to the layperson, and it's quite difficult. But once it clicks, you realize, my God, this is it. Now, then we then have to look at it from the other side, that if it is a hologram, who is creating it? Now, this is very intriguing. It, uh, put, it was a major. It was put forward. I thought there's a guy called Lee Smolin first put it forward, and there is a British mathematician whose name has just escaped me, Cambridge mathematician, who came up with this idea uh, around about 2000. And what he argued was, you know, Moore's law in in, 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 in computing. Moore's law is that every two years, our our, our abilities to actually make um, processes that can process information doubles. And Moore's law has continued fairly well since, since Moore, who was the guy that uh, started Intel, suggested it in the mid-1960s. It's been fairly true. I think it's moved out to about three years now. But this means that if you extrapolate from now to about, say, 300 years in the future, the amount of computing power that will be available to our, um, our descendants will be absolutely phenomenal. I now, hate to stop it, you there, but we, we have to take a break. Of all okay. times. We'll be right back, though, with that. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley and our amazing guest, Anthony Peak. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Joe Callahan. Join me weekday mornings 5 to 8 for the ON Morning Fun Show. We'll have local news, state news, national news, Lou Mandeville on sports, great music, fun features, and trivia. Weekday mornings 5 to 8 on ON 1240, WON, One Socket Radio. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal, our zany show today, technologically, but we're getting through with Anthony Peake, our tremendous guest, a consciousness expert, and one of our good friends. Um, Anthony, let's uh, pick up where we left off there, and uh, you were saying, talking about some of this more amazing uh, stuff regarding consciousness, and the, um, uh, I did have one or two questions, but finish your thought, please. Okay, but just, just extrapolating them from Moore's Law, then the idea is that if we don't blow ourselves up in a nuclear holocaust and we survive, it is highly likely that our future, future uh, ancestors will have at their, at their hands really, really amazing amounts of computing, science, computing power. Because, of course, really a computer is just something that can actually work with digital information. It doesn't need to be electronic, an electronic computer. It could be a quantum computer, which we can also come into in detail if we want to later on. But effectively, it would mean that they would have all this computing power. And the question is, what would they do with it? Well, we already know that we create simulations. We have a concept called the sims. You know, we, we do this. Now, if we had all this computing power, why would we not create simulations? And if we create simulations, why not create history simulations? And if we created history simulations, why not populate those history simulations with people who actually existed? And indeed, if we can get over what's called a substrate problem, which is effectively creating consciousness from a, 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 a system, we could create sims in which the people, the sims within the sim, are actually self-aware, and they're living within a simulation. Now, 
again, the uh, it's really annoying. I can't remember the guy's name now. I should. I quote him quite often. Um, but effectively, he argued that it is it is almost a certitude that we are living in a simulation. Now, if that is the case, this research that's been done by Lee Smoller, by um, uh, Craig Hogan and, and Jacob Beckenstein and his associates, this is suggesting that we now have the evidence for this. Now, there has been a recently, or comparatively recent, there, there is something called the GO6000 um, gravity wave device. It's, it's a machine in southern Germany that's there to try and see if we can find gravity waves, a very important thing to be discovered in, in physics. Now, this machine actually discovered, picked up some signals a few years ago. And the maths were quite interesting because if the universe, and I can't go into details now because we haven't got time, but if the universe was a simulation, there would be certain mathematical structures that would be discovered. And they found them. Really? Now, if this is the case, there are now, they're now finding clues to the fact that this is a simulation. But the billion-dollar question here, guys, is if we are in a simulation and we are sims within a simulation, what takes place if we become aware of the fact we're in a simulation? That begs some fascinating questions. And indeed, can we break out of it? But indeed, do we want to? Then you got a matrix situation going on. So which one of us is Neo? Exactly. It's very much, I mean, one of the things I've argued for many, many years is the idea of, 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 of the way society is in many ways um, has its own kind of driving force, its zeitgeist, its weltgeist. And mm. I think a lot of the movies these days, well, particularly since The Matrix, have very much been dealing with exactly these things. The 13th Floor is another one. Um, an earlier I write a great deal about is lucid dreaming, altered states of consciousness. When you lucid dream, you go into altered states. You, you go into another creative world that you can create out of your own thoughts if you're a very adept lucid dreamer. Uh, Inception is a classic movie about this. Now, does this mean that there are levels of reality, that reality is nested in many, many ways? Does dreaming fit in with all this? And indeed, the billion-dollar question is, we could be dreaming now. In fact, we don't know whether we're dreaming or not, and we might be awaking to awake from this dream, because there is a phenomenon called um, false awakenings, where people get up, clean their teeth, and then wake up again. Then they get up, clean their teeth, go downstairs, and have breakfast and wake up again. One guy wrote to me a few years, he'd had about eight or nine of these, and he got to the middle of the afternoon in his dream state when he then woke up again. And he asked me the billion-dollar question. He said, how do I know that the last waking was the correct one? Is there another reality you wake up in? And I argued dimethyltryptamine and substances like these entheogens, I believe... But not only do they create this reality, uh, create alternate realities, but all these realities are also real. But I also argue that these realities are created by the pineal gland, and the pineal gland itself synthesizes dimethyltryptamine from melatonin. What, th this is something I had not intended to bring up, but it's so fascinating, I think I, I will, and get your, your opinion on it, Anthony. Um, I'm writing a book, too, right now. And you know how you get... I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm writing a book, I, I get, like, crazy. I mean, my wife has to put up with it, and Ben does. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I have an entire chapter on, on something I had never run into before the 1970s and really haven't heard much of since. I call it the flashing nexus. And I first encountered it in 1976 when someone came to me and said that their father had been on an operating table and had, and all of a sudden, you know, and he was, he was conscious. He wasn't even under, all of a sudden he was the doctor. And then it shifted and he was the nurse. And then it shifted and he was, 
someone driving by outside. And I haven't encountered this a lot, but it has come up from time to time. Uh, very often people are not in medical situations. They'll be in, in waking life. And it rings a bell regarding what you've just said. I mean, have you ever encountered that, and could it be related to what you've just described? Yeah, no, it could be. I mean, the thing is that the reality that, that, that we take for, to be real is because it's consensual. By consensual, I mean that we share it with other people. So if you and I both see a red car driving past us, we are in agreement with something that's happening out in what we believe is three-dimensional reality, and that is the, the evidence that that reality is that this reality is real. But there is just as much an argument to say that when you are in altered states of consciousness, and there are many, many cases where individuals have shared altered states of consciousness, whereby they come back and they report exactly the same things. Now, if two people can share an altered state of consciousness, that makes that as veridical and makes that as real as this consciousness, this particular reality. So is, is consciousness far more complex than we can believe? And indeed, if we are one single consciousness perceiving itself subjectively, with the famous Bill Hicks monologue from many, many years ago, which I'm totally, I believe this is the way we're going, we can flick between consciousnesses. Now, could this explain, for example, um, precognitions? Could it explain remote viewing? Could it explain, uh, for instance, hypnotic regression? where people go back into alternate lives and they look up at the evidence and it is clear that people remember things from other lives. Now, recent research has shown that there's something in to do with neuroplasticity and it is something also to do with what's called resonances within consciousness. For example, there's one very intriguing experiment that is done regularly where you can take a day-old chicks um, and like pigeons chips and you can actually take a cardboard cutout of an eagle and put it over the nest and the chicks cower they have some kind of DNA memory of the fact that this is dangerous now there is no way that that kind of information can be transferred unless there is another form of mental transformation that takes place that where conscious beings can communicate and can carry information and I believe the information is probably carried through DNA well, we, but before you ask anything, Ben, uh, as usual, Anthony, we are just getting started. However, before we burn up the hour, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your website and your books and where people can find out more. Yeah, okay. Uh, the website is anthonypig.com. Um, I'm very, very active on Facebook. Um, I'm at my 5,000 friends limit, um, but you can also you can still follow me on there, and I post very, very regularly on there and I interface very directly um, I posted something today about the true nature of reality in terms of subatomic particles which some of you might find interesting mm. now on top of this um, I'm also I lecture regularly um, I do regular talks I also have my own um, podcast which uh, you guys have been on before in the past called Consciousness Hour which goes out every month mm -hmm. and what I'm doing is I'm building up this this mega uber hypothesis about reality and I need people's help I need your experiences I need to know whether I'm right whether I'm wrong whether I'm barking up the wrong tree because I'm not a guru I'm, I'm not anybody that's saying I'm channeling this from the planet Tharg and you know, <laughs> 16,000 year old Atlantean god is talking through me I'm just an ordinary guy asking the big questions 
and I am keen if people turn around and say you've got your science wrong great tell me I'll, I'll amend it if it's something I've said is wrong you know I'm more than happy to amend it uh, because this is not what I'm at I'm, a, I'm after truth I'm trying to find out exactly what's going on here so join me get involved in my work um, uh, the, you, if you're interested in any of my lectures and talks just, just go on to Google go on to YouTube put in Anthony Peak. there is tons and tons and tons of material out there Come in and join us. The water is very nice. <laughs> Might add the peak is spelled with an E, P E A K. It is. That way. It is. As in, as in the UK astronaut, though probably you won't even know about him over there. But uh, well, I have brings. heard rumors. Yes. But yeah, uh, yeah. What you just described about your attitude is why we l- love you so much. I mean, you're you're a dis- you're a, you're a uh, an honored colleague for your your on- little intellectual honesty. There's so little of that. Well, allow me to make it make a quick amendment. There's a difference between asking the questions and attempting to find answers to them. Very true. It is, isn't it? Okay. So, uh, uh, well, uh, along that that line of thought, so the the idea of... I I really like how you put that, flicking in between consciousnesses. That's a very interesting way of putting it. I would... It seems almost involuntary, which is what's odd, because I I know exactly what you mean. Like, one minute you could be... I don't know. I I remember there was a... a, this this, I, I had a mentor back in the day... Who essentially said something along the lines of, you know, you can you can connect with other other parts of of you out there. I don't want to say you, but English is garbage for describing the indescribable. Mm-hmm. So essentially, connecting with other portions of a greater being in you know the bigger the bigger expanse of the multiverse or or whatever, and you know you can draw talents from them essentially. In which I I, I hesitatingly say used when I was attempting to learn how to play guitar and like bass and all that stuff. So. That was more of a, a voluntary thing, but essentially, I, I, I had no clue what I was doing. It was just sort of like, it, even then, it was still sort of like unconscious. Would you say that most of these these sort of experiences that people have flicking between consciousnesses is it more of a part of the human experience, or is it something that we've sort of learned over time, or does it have something more to do with DNA, like like you said? I think, in many ways, it could be something we've lost the ability to do. I think that probably in, um, in ancient times, we probably had the ability to do it far more than we can do now. I mean, one of the things that intrigues me all the time is, is how these kind of experiences cannot be controlled. Uh, I work very closely with people who lucid dream and have out-of-the-body experiences. And I, I, I do not believe, and I've yet to find anybody, that if there's people out there that claim they can do it, fine, I'd love to hear from them, that can get out of their body at will do not believe it you know there is nobody out there that can ever do that and even the famous cases that claim they could do it uh, people like Ingo Swan couldn't they claim they could but I did an awful lot of research on Ingo Swan for my book on the outer body experience there were a lot of claims and a lot of exaggerations don't, I don't necessarily believe he couldn't do it but he couldn't do it at will now what is going on here why is it that it happens spontaneously and I think there's a, a, a relationship here with hypnagogic imagery and hypnopompic imagery hmm. which is that imagery just as you go to sleep and it's just when you wake up you can never seem to control it you know you will see shapes you will see light you will see faces uh, you will sometimes see scenery but the minute you put your attention to it it, it evaporates mm-hmm. it's, it's so difficult to do Now, I think that the more we try to train ourselves to do this, the more we're probably likely to be able to do it more and move into these altered states. 
but I genuinely believe that we can do it now. Uh, there, there are machines. I mean, I'm doing a big event in London um, uh, later this year um, where I've got something called the Lucid Light Device, the Hypnagogic Light Device, which has been invented by uh, a consultant neurologist and a consultant psychologist. And this can generate instant, fairly quickly uh, altered states of consciousness. I've tried it myself a few times. I know of nobody who has used this machine that hasn't had an experience. Um, it is very, very powerful, and we are going to be working on this. We'll be doing a series of experiments with this machine later, early next year, in some caves in, in the centre of the UK, where we've got research scientists being involved as well. So we're now starting to find there are tools that we can use, and these are, these are all things that can help going back to the start of the discussion that can help us open the doors of perception can give us glimpses of what's behind the door can give us glimpses of that greater wider reality what i call the pleroma from the gnostic belief system mm. you know the wholeness the fullness that sits behind this reality and this this place is the place we 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 go into when we die when we fall out of time we get glimpses all the time of it this, this is the hallucination. This is the hallucinatory world. The reality behind the reality is far more real. And in fact, associates of mine who have used a substance called um, 5-MeO-DMT, which is a very powerful version of DMT that actually is getting from the secretions of sonoran toads in the United States, mm. people who do that, they change forever. They actually come back to this reality and say, this is just not, just not it. This isn't it. Which is exactly what Aldous Huxley did when he did when he took peyote or mescaline in 1954 when he wrote the opening uh, opening the doors uh, when he wrote the doors of perception he was describing his experiences with peyote and it changed his world completely and utterly well, and anybody who has these extraordinary experiences will know that is the case. Well, this is a nagging question for me, and it comes up. We came up in conversations with Graham Hancock and people who have experimented with ayahuasca uh, and DMT and stuff that, that, that the shamans very often will take. And the question is simply that: uh, Is this? Are these not all illusions created chemically in the brain by these substances, or are they real? However, we may describe that. What say you? Right, I can counter that straight away because it's a fascinating statement you made. The hallucinations created in the brain. Everything is hallucinations well, created in no, the brain. There is. Yeah. I, I walked right into that one, didn't yeah. I, Ben? A little yeah. bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other argument is as well, it's when we use this term hallucination. Hallucination is one of these labels that modern uh, reductionist science, materialist reductionist science, and eliminative reductionist science love. Yes. I always, I always then ask the question behind the question. And I ask the question, I say, okay, so what exactly is an hallucination? And then you start getting really into some very, very nebulous areas. Um, for instance, Oliver Sacks, the famous Anglo-American psychiatrist, his very last book was called Hallucinations. And in this, he discusses things, as I do in my book, things like um, uh, Charles Bonnet syndrome. Um, where the hallucinations are out there in three-dimensional reality. There are, there are hallucinations that seem to be in front of things that are in external reality, which means there's a hallucination of exclusion, which we seem to be able to create. And the, the definition of an hallucination is, as I was making the point before, is a perception that is not shared by other people. That's the only definition for it. Mm. 
they do not know what hallucinations are. It's, it's, it's this wonderful thing of labelling. We give yeah. it a label, and if we can give it a nice, posh-sounding, preferably Latin or Greek name, <laughs> we, can, we can then pretend we understand it. It's like the word idiopathic. People have idiopathic epilepsy. Do you know what idiopathic means? means? Nobody knows what the cause is. Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> do that as a diagnosis. Yes. And people will go and wait. Oh, wow, I've got idiopathic. Uh, I've got idiopathic epilepsy. You know, it's 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 uh, smoke and mirrors. It's smoke <laughs> it's and mirrors. True. It has a certain I don't know a certain je ne sais quoi. One of, <laughs> one, one of my favorite does. cliches. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that gets us. That gets us everywhere. There's one thing I'd like to go back to just briefly, Anthony, and that's uh, when, when you mentioned uh, a two-dimensional reality be possibly being the background for the hologram. Which two dimensions? That I don't know, because all, all holograms are two dimensions. And, of course, how we work on dimensions is the idea, isn't it? You say there's a point on a page, then you draw a line, that's your first dimension. You go at right angle from that, and you end up with a second dimension which would be a square. Then you go a right angle from that, and you end up with a cube, which is the third dimension. And then you move into the fourth dimension, which is a tesseract or a hypercube, when you draw a line, an angle from all of the angled um, uh, right angles. Now, this is how geometry works. So we're talking here about dimensions in a very precise way. So two dimensions is a flat plane three dimensions is has depth as well now again if anybody is interested in, in in this whole application we were talking before about the zeitgeist and movies if you watch interstellar christopher nolan again very very perceptive director that guy oh yeah he has a section on there called the tesseract sequence which is when the central character is looking back over the life of his daughter and what you see is a, an attempt to show a tesseract which is whereby you're seeing it in time. You're seeing it in, in expansions of time. It's in fact going back to, to, to physics. It's Minkowski. It's called block time. Minkowski was um, Einstein's teacher. And of course this bounces straight back again to J.B. Priestley. Because in J.B. Priestley's Time and the Conway's book, this is exactly what he discusses. The idea that time itself is a dimension. And that we compartmentalize time into what we call the moments and we exist within the moments but in external time or what a person I've also written about Philip K. Dick called orthogonal time there's another wonderful statement it just means at a right angle from but it sounds impressive doesn't it mm -hmm. orthogonal man yes. um, yeah. but it's just a right angle from and orth orthogonal time is effectively if you look at your life from a position outside of the four of the three dimensions and the fourth dimension within space-time and from outside of that your life is not this moment this is just a snapshot and your life in fact is is what's called the long body the ling saria that is used in 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 indian indian belief systems you are all of your lives you are all of your moments from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death and all those moments exist concurrently in orthogonal time. So this is how we can move within time. This is how we can move within time in dreams. And of course, if we then extrapolate into a further dimensions, and of course, if we look about string theory, string theory is talking about what? Eleven dimensions wrapped within each other? And this is seriously debated within, within the quantum physics community. So it's much deeper than we can ever, ever, ever imagine. 
you know, we are going right down, as the Matrix says, we are going right down the rabbit hole right here. The rabbit hole, yeah. God knows where we're going, but there's some interesting places to be found. Not a, never a dull moment. Well, what you describe, Anthony, is, is precisely, really, in, in perhaps some other terms, but precisely what we've experienced and what have we got to combine 60 years of in-the-trenches paranormal work and it, it, it really swoops in from, from the back door and explains, in many ways, things that people have attached superstitions to for mm. millennia. You know? and well, for instance, you know, your, your experiences with the Welsh-speaking people uh, and the time slip that took place that you describe in one of your books. You know, I was talking only a couple of days ago to somebody at work about just how incredible that is. You know, that's taking the kind of stone theory one step further. You also discuss about disincarnate entities that seem to feed upon energy. This is going to be the theme of my next book because I'm very interested if you go through the doors of perception, what do you encounter when, when you encounter, you know, the machine elves, uh, the Terence McKenna machine elves, what do you encounter? Uh, you know, when people take dimethyltryptamine, when they take ayahuasca, these entities seem to have self-awareness. They seem to be expecting us. They seem to be waiting for us. They seem to be beings that exist liminally very close to us. You know, the jinn, all these yeah. concepts, they're all there. And I think they're all elements of the same phenomenon, UFO abductions. The, the similarities between UFO abductions and people who see things during states of um, DNT, and more importantly, young children when they have mythical friends. The mythical friends, many of them, have elements of self-evidently aliens. Now, I argue, and I'm taking in my next book, I'll be taking the Jacques Vallée idea of the passport to Magonia, wow. and I'm going to take that much further. And I'll be quoting your experiences. The, your book is very important to me in terms of this, and I will be citing a lot of your work, because it is a profound importance. You know, well, what are these things? Well, you've made my day, Anthony, uh, for someone of your caliber to be quoting my work. As, as uh, Mark Twain says, I can live six months on one good compliment. But... but uh, <laughs> But uh, the the issue of I, I just I, my my entire first chapter of my next book is uh, based on experiences with exorcisms in the 1970s when I was a seminary student assisting a priest, and I just got the impression that so much more was going on. The approach was wrong. These energy parasites, as, as I've actually had mental health care workers tell me, literally feed upon this stuff. The exorcism made it worse. And of course, you know, again, I was 21 years old, like they're going to listen to me. So, uh, but, but this is just amazing. Ben, do you have any final thoughts? Because um, we're out of time, unfortunately. Of course, we're all, it's never enough never time. Never enough time. Never enough time. Well, I mean, it's always, always a pleasure to have you on, uh, Anthony. It's just, every time the doors of perception open for me, and it just, yeah. you know, it's all, it's a new, it's an interesting way of thinking. You and I, I always enjoy, months. I always enjoy it. Thank you. Very good. I enjoy talking with you guys. Well, give us your website, please, one more time, Anthony, and uh, we'll be in okay. touch off the air. Okay, it's Anthony Peake. That's Anthony with an H and P-E-A-K-E. It's anthonypeake.com. Uh, as I say, come in, join me, look me up on Facebook, uh, look me up on Twitter. There's lots of stuff in there. Join in. We are a worldwide community. We're all looking for answers, and the answers can only be found by our own going inwards and looking inside and coming to our own conclusions to what makes sense. I can try and guide, uh, but as I always say to people, you know, don't look at my finger, look at where I'm pointing. Outstanding. Because that's the journey. Very good. Thank you mm. so much. We'll be in touch.
Okay, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Okay, very good. Okay, uh, Ben, uh, can you take away the announcements here? I will do my best to take away. Alrighty, so many thanks to Mike Stevens, uh, Andy Kitt, and all the folks uh, from Granite Skies Services uh, and the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies for hosting us last weekend uh, for our talk and live broadcast from Stratum, New Hampshire. And uh, thanks uh, to also the 11 panelists that uh, were there for our great live audience. And it was, it was a good time, and it was a lot of fun. It was. Um, on Saturday, July 21st, we'll be back at the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut to present a program on Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, based on our 2017 book of the same subtitle. This is free and open to the public, but registration is required. Do go, uh, go, to, uh, do go to danburylibrary.org, click on the View Calendar link on the right, and it'll take you to the calendar and look for that date, uh, July 21st. Alrighty, and on Wednesday, uh, July 11th, hopefully the uh, two of us, but my dad at least, uh, will be at the Far Out Diner uh, in Dover, New Hampshire at 6.30 p.m. Uh, to join the Talking Saucer Meetup group. Uh, we won't uh, make any special presentation, uh, but we will hobnob uh, with UFO experiencers and enthusiasts, and we'll certainly enjoy the great food at this UFO-themed diner. Uh, they have amazing pancakes. Uh, the evening is sponsored by Seacoast Saucers of New England. And I have to point out that we often get inquiries from people who believe they've had very, very upsetting or, or very good UFO experiences of some kind, abduction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A group like this is, uh, what, what, what do they call it in modern parlance, a safe space yes. to come and, and speak with others who've had similar experiences. And, and, uh, and even, if you, even if you come and, you know, I'll ask, ask the questions for you if you want to come and that sort of thing. People expect uh, Ben and I to ask questions, but it, it's a wonderful group to... Uh, maybe get a little closer to some answers uh, that you might be from experiences you might have uh, been might be afraid of. So anyway, on Labor Day weekend, September first and second, we'll be back at the wonderful Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire. Our subject on Saturday will be aliens and exorcism. Why do possessed quote unquote people report UFO experiences? On Sunday, we'll do our third annual on-location broadcast from Exeter Town Hall with a panel of the speakers uh, and the live audience. The event is a great annual fundraiser for the Kiwanis Club Children's Charities in that area, and last year it raised over $9,000. Okay, the uh, 2018 MUFON Symposium takes place at the Crown Plaza, Philadelphia, and Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Ben and I aren't speaking this year, but it's a great event, and it's rarely on the East Coast, so check it out, MUFONSymposium.com. Then on Columbus Day weekend on October 5th and 6th, we'll once again be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Uh, not sure about our topic yet, but stay tuned, and you can find out more at newenglandufo.com. And now we're kind of coming down to the wire, so next week is very special. In fact, it will be our two-hour special uh, to celebrate our 10th anniversary show, and it will also introduce a new in-studio panel format with open lines. Next week's panel will include uh, paranormal researcher and popular guest co-host uh, Shane Searway, filmmaker and Bigfoot researcher Alexander Petikoff, who we now have informed to be here at the right time, and uh, <laughs> UFO researcher and Galileo interviewer uh, host, that would be uh, Charles Credo. Okay, that's all we have time for. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on a great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.